Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Backblaze Online Backup. It's a simple way to back up all your movies, photos, music, videos, and all of the data just for $5 a month. It's simple, and you can access all your data online from wherever you are. Try it absolutely free by going to backblaze.com slash cpc. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E dot com slash cpc. If you need me to spell cpc, man, you're in trouble. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, Comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi, everybody. I'm Eric Arnault, and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast with part two of our show themed A Fortnight from the Heart. As you may remember from last week, Fortnight from the Heart began as a 14-day celebration of power ballads leading up to Valentine's Day in 2016, and since then, I've also used it to celebrate local nonprofit organizations I love. On this week's episode, Fortnite creator Tyler Snodgrass explains its origins, and you'll also get pieces from wonderful storytellers Margot Tameltis, Mike Chuck Bretzliff, and Ashley Keenan, plus music from myself, Dwight Hassler, and Katie Johnston-Smith playing What Else But Power Ballads. And speaking of local nonprofits, these Fortnite episodes were recorded in the classroom at 826Shy, a really amazing local organization that helps students find their creative writing voice. You'll hear some of their pieces throughout this episode. They are really, really great. Uh, now, if you want to support their efforts, take a trip to 826Shy.org. That's 826Chi.org. You can donate to their projects or even pick up some books their students have published. After the show, I bought one called P.S. You Sound Like Someone I Can Trust, which is a collection of handwritten letters between 8th graders on the southwest side and 10th graders on the northwest side, and it's a really cool exploration of analog communication between strangers with seemingly different but not really lives uh, in a digital age. I loved it. So, you might have looked at a calendar and noticed that the actual Fortnite from the Heart is starting in just a couple days here on Thursday. Well, rest assured, your stories will be participating... From February 1st to 14th, we'll be going daily, diving into our archive for a different story related to love and a different ballady song each day. This will be a chance to revisit some classic, maybe under-the-radar pieces from our six years of history, and it should get you in the Valentine's Day mood. I'll also be making a note of what organization I'm spotlighting each day, so if you're looking for people doing good work around Chicago, uh, it'll give you some ideas. So I think that's everything I've got to cover for now. Let's get to the show and check back Thursday for our first Fortnite from the Heart installment. We, you know, we started with kind of uh, arena rock, just like, you know, kind of power ballad, but REO Speedwagon, not the most powerful band. Then we went modern. This is straight up 80s hair, like long hair. Uh, me and Dwight are both really pushing on this song, so please be forgiving of, because we're going to go for it, y'all. <laughs> 2018 is the year going for it. This is by a man. So the album's called New Jersey. Also the state where he's from. It's not Bruce Springsteen. You guys know who it is. Dwight will be playing Richie Sambora. And of course, I am John Bon Jovi. I guess this time you're really leaving. 
suitcase to say goodbye. And as my broken heart lies bleeding, you say true love is suicide. Bon Jovi, Richie's a better singer than John. <laughs> uh, Katie, come on back. Yeah, John's the Bon jo- I'm the Bon Jovi in this band. Yeah. <laughs> and Dwight's the better singer. Uh, Katie, do you want to introduce this one? My yeah. voice is gone now for, yeah. for the rest of ever. This song has been covered by a lot of people. It was originally written by uh, Bob Dylan. Uh, my favorite cover of it is Billy Joel. Uh, because I love the Hamptons. 
<laughs> this is down Easter Alexa. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, I've never been to the Hamptons, but I've watched every episode of Revenge, so I think it's the same thing. Um, anyway, uh-huh. this is what's it called again? To make you feel my love. <laughs> stuff okay great i've got it now so coming up next oh man such a treat to have this woman here only i think her third time but the first two were just real real stunners and i I wish you'd come do this show more uh she is a a teacher at national lewis university specializing in what first uh generation college students right which is super awesome she's a really great essayist and improviser and comedian in her own right please welcome margo to I get to start out with this wonderful piece by Iman Y. It doesn't tell me what grade or age she is, but it's obvious she's wiser than her years, most definitely. Whatever those years may be. Dairy, I give you permission. Wreck my stomach. So long as I can have the pleasure of pulling apart your stringy mozzarella sticks. <laughs> I prefer not to have you in your weakened, limp, room temperature state, but I will still nurture you and pull you apart with care. I will tentatively bite into the waxy skin of your round, full, brie figure, always temporarily forgetting if it's edible. I will resign myself to amazement every time I discover your simultaneously sweet and salty character. I will drink your calcium-rich nectar, known as milk by common folk. (laughs) 
<laughs> hoping to find my strength in its nutritional value. You only have one serious flaw that I think you are very well aware of. You sit in the hands of Jamie Lee Curtis, telling the world how good you are for digestive systems. <laughs> Or let Bobby Flay get you to the Greek and use you as a substitute in cooking? No! I see right through you to your tartness and tang, and I almost hate you for letting yourself regress to a yogurt form. You're so much better than that. Don't let the world manipulate you. You're cultured enough without bacterial fermentation. Oh, dairy. You always trick me into thinking you're good for me but I end up sick and gassy in the end. I think you're worth it. <laughs> uh, this is uh, the first part of a much longer piece. One day I'll have a solid 20 minutes somewhere of my own and I'll, I'll tell the whole thing in, together, but here's part one. It's called The Mirage. It's barely nine, but already the sun is unrelenting. I'm watching two officers in County Green walk up the road through Camp Justice. When I first saw them, I was sitting on the outskirts behind our tent. I could easily have run away. But they look like a shimmering mirage in this heat, and they can't possibly be coming from me. So I just stand there and watch the mirage get closer. The landscape is right. The desert, an hour outside Las Vegas, wide stretches of sun-bleached blue sky, snow-capped mountains at every horizon. It's beautiful, except for the blind-faced gray reaper drones rising silent into the sky with remarkable regularity. The Nevada desert looks hauntingly like Afghanistan or Pakistan where these drones fly. Bombs controlled here, dropped on presumed enemies, often civilians, often children, on the other side of the world. The lie is that this is precise, a surgery instead of a tragedy. The lie is that such distance diminishes the guilt somehow, as if these thousands of miles between the pilots and their blurry targets keep our warriors safe. Their PTSD, addiction, suicide say otherwise. Along the highway near the base, beneath a shadeless expanse of sky, signs read, prison area, do not pick up hitchhikers. It's a bizarre convergence of pure Americana, a few acres of desert where a federal prison, a wild horse preserve, and Creech Air Force Base all meet here on the outskirts of Sin City. This morning, we disrupted traffic into base. We've been holding vigils during rush hour, but today we blocked the highway. They arrested my mother, but not me. And I cried, screaming, I love you, Mom! I'm proud of you! As she was handcuffed and loaded into a small white cage on the back of the truck. But they didn't arrest me. I wasn't in the highway, only standing by the side of the road with a heart-shaped sign reading, Muslim Lives Matter. The road was blocked by my mom and a couple of others willing to put their bodies on the line. It was my mom who'd been willing to risk arrest, not me. But in the dangerous electric moment, I can't leave her. A semi swerves past her and she raises her voice to be heard above the cursing and screeching, Mom! I scream, but she doesn't hear me or won't reply. A woman in fatigues driving an SUV has pulled onto the shoulder to get around us. I'm standing on the shoulder, holding my heart-shaped sign. I should get out of the way, maybe, but I can't. I can't. It's insane. These people are enraged by their interrupted commute, but not by the children dying on their watch. The night before, I'd seen a docu the documentary National Bird. The screening is held in a church, the film introduced by two drone whistleblowers. On the screen, beneath a cross, a mother describes watching her children die while their brother listens, both legs missing. Hospital files brim with these accidental amputees. The whistleblowers 
hunch in their pew as if praying for forgiveness. Alex was a drone pilot whose finger used to press that final trigger. He is cocky and tough, a bulldog in black. He tells me, matter-of-factly, that he has nightmares every night. Sean was a drone engineer. His hands helped build this technology. In the church, these hands stay folded quietly in his lap, but his whole body quakes, (laughs) does not stop quaking. When Sean was discharged, they gave him a document of his successful missions, 200 kills. They won't tell him how many were civilians. He has tried to find out. He shakes so much, I want to wrap my arms around him and soak his pain up like a sponge. Share this burden with him. The next morning, beside the highway, this woman's SUV pointed at me. Instead of turning around as others have done, as others have done she drives towards me. Muslim lives matter, my sign says but from the way she is driving straight at me, I doubt my life matters to her either. The truck touches my thighs. It's crazy for me to stay here, stupid, but those are thoughts, afterthoughts. Here is no thinking, just the feel of the truck pressing into my legs and my desperation to stop her, maybe to save her from becoming haunted as Alex and Sean are haunted. She doesn't care that I'm trying to save her soul. She is late for work, and I am in the way. She presses forward, and I imagine my legs cracking in half. Then I think of children kneeling in the dust, the unjust asymmetry of their missing limbs, and it seems only fair to risk mine. I am no more innocent, no more deserving of a body that can dance. I feel the woman ease off her break and roll into my thighs, and it is only the survival animal in me that shoves me out of the way. When the officers appear at camp an hour later, I could hide in our tent or disappear into the desert. Instead, I walk towards them. Why? My mother's an activist. I was raised with a healthy distrust of the police. But just the day before, during an afternoon vigil, a young officer had approached me to untie my banner from a highway sign. I bristled immediately, but as I slowly untied the banner, we wound up in good conversation. I explained that my distrust of the police was rational, living in the city where the police assassinated Fred Hampton. He told me his priority was keeping people safe. How? I asked. By keeping drunk drivers off the road, he said. It was his last day of work before getting married. They were going to Greece for their honeymoon. I said, Greece is magnificent. More stars in the night sky than you've ever seen. I decide that the next time I encounter an officer, I will begin by assuming the best. Give them a chance to be human. So the next day, when Officer Marlowe says he's not here to arrest me, I take him at his word. He was worried about me, he says, how upset I was when they arrested my mom. And since she's been so well-behaved, He would let me see her. My mother is such an activist diva, I can believe for one wild moment that I am a warrior princess and these armed, unsmiling men did so honor my mother, the queen, that they were taking me to see her, a prisoner in their white cage. The officers march me through camp. Fellow activists stand as we pass, but I smile and wave them off. It's okay, be back soon. We cross the highway and enter the base, walk another five minutes in the sun. We talk about breakfast. Marlo asks if I've eaten yet. I haven't. These vigils start before dawn, rush hour into base. Marlo eats a hearty breakfast every day, eggs and sausage, wheat toast and a smoothie. I tell him I don't eat breakfast, only coffee before I run to work. I'm a teacher. We are still outdoors blue sky, mountains, sun beating down. I'm probably still smiling, excited to see my mother and to get this sneak peek of the base. My heart warmed by this officer, Marlo, behaving like a human being. We turn a corner and suddenly I am closed off, 
surrounded by khaki walls as guns close into a circle around me. My bag is taken from my shoulders and my hands are shackled to a chain around my waist. We are taking you to your mother, Marlowe says, but first we are arresting you. Who wants to give Margot for 20 minutes sometimes so we can get all of that? Good Lord. That was great. Oh, man, super intense. Uh, I assume at some point you got unarrested, so uh, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for sharing that. Um, coming next to the stage, this gentleman, no stranger to the show, he runs a, his own nonprofit called Chicago Loot Drop, which pairs like nerdy um, fun stuff like video games and, and toys and board games or analog games, as I weirdly like to call them, with, uh, with fundraising mostly for um, like uh, Comer Children's Hospital. Like he, he gets kids in Comer to have a better time through his efforts, and that's great. Please welcome to the stage Mike Chuck Rutzliff. I think you're saying welcome to the area immediately in front of the stage. Oh, uh, sorry about my voice. I uh, was doing karaoke till like 1 a.m. and I broke it trying to yodel the end part of Dreams by Cranberries. Mostly succeeded, I think, at getting the yodel. Um, yeah, I'll do a quick loot drop plug. Uh, I've got these flyers if anyone wants uh, information about us, but uh, we have an event next month, February 24th, at Revolution Tap Room, um, where we'll be making comfort kits, or these little shoebox-sized uh, shoe box boxes full of toys and comics and games and stuff that um, the kids uh, get upon uh, entering the hospital. Um, and so you can sign up on our website for that, and it's kind of like you know running a marathon, where you sign up, you tell your friends, you're like, hey, I want to build this many kits, and you know, they'll give you money, you show up, and we have all the stuff for you to uh, build those kits with. Uh, Revolution is giving all everybody um, that comes out to build um, a free drink, um, as well as um, we're going to be doing some party games with the um, Playtest Games Society, featuring uh, Earworm, which is a new game by um, local nerd production group versus the universe um, that will be coming to Kickstarter in March. So it's going to be a really good, fun afternoon. Um, so check it out. I have flyers if you want to um, take something home with you. As well as if you're interested in volunteering, we have a volunteer meeting next Saturday at Batterbrow Brewing. We do a lot of things at breweries. Um, and we'll be covering uh, the Comfort Kids Day, uh, our sixth fundraiser for Comer at on the show floor at C2E2, where we um, pair kids from the hospital with local comic book artists, and they create drawings of the kids as superheroes. Um, it's awesome. Um, and then we, in May, we have the Midwest Developers uh, Game Developers Kickball Tournament. So we need lots of help. So if you're interested, um, come talk to me at the end or check us out on our website. Um, and I am going to read, this pairs just so perfectly with the previous story. The um, previous story is Dairy. This is called Cookie. <laughs> Bye, Leah. You are chocolate chip and oatmeal, too. That is why I love you. <laughs> Yep. So, uh, that was cookie. And this is I Heart Donuts. Mm -hmm. I am loud. Let me finish. I am loud about the things that I like. Uh, at any point in my life, it's always pretty obvious what I'm into at the moment, many of which I've talked about on this very podcast. Uh, pro wrestling. Star Wars, zombies, video games, zombie video games. Uh, before my last story, Eric pointed out um, I was wearing an I Heart Donut shirt. Um, and it's true, I do heart donuts. I would even say that I love them. Uh, and I've said as much to a donut or two in my life. <laughs> oh, so good. But everyone loves donuts, or at least likes donuts. I'm sure if I'd brought some donuts, which I probably should have, uh, you all would take them. Uh, I, you know, unless you don't like donuts, which is the case you're just wrong. Uh, you know, as a person. Uh, just kidding, sorry. Uh, so I have less of a story, more of a list of examples demonstrating my love for the fried treat descended from the Netherlands, Olikek, and first given its name in print by Washington Irving, 
which is a thing I learned in a history book about donuts that I read because I heart donuts. Okay, number one, social media. My pin tweet says, some people use their phone to show photos of their kids. I use mine to show photos of donuts I've had recently. <laughs> Eric actually has described my Instagram account as food porn, but of just donuts. Um, if anybody wants to see them, I can show you the donuts I got just yesterday from Long Mini Eagle uh, for the pre-women's March brunch. Uh, they're great. Um, that pin tweet is also what's on my dating profile. Uh, and I sometimes wonder I'd get more swipe rights if I changed it to um, I'll make you donuts in the morning. <laughs> uh, yeah. But more on making donuts at the end. Um, two, mind map. Anywhere I go, if I discover they have a donut that I haven't tried before, I will get that donut. Uh, my dad is actually the same way, but with hot dogs. Um, and in fact, when I was home for the holidays, he was telling me all about a new gas station with really good hot dogs. <laughs> um, good to know. <laughs> Gonna pass on the gas station hot dog. Uh, but eating all these donuts and all these different places means I have like a mind map. So I'm always aware where the closest place is for me to get a donut, um, especially in Chicago. And I'm pretty sure it's just up at Wormhole. You can get those uh, gluten-free donuts from Fritz Bakery or something like that. Uh, anyway, so when I go anywhere, my mind map activates and lets me know, hey, if you take the slightly longer route, you can get a donut. Uh, which is why when I decided to do a donut crawl for my upcoming birthday in March, it took me less than 10 seconds to plan. <laughs> Starting at the Davis Tea on Michigan in Randolph, because you gotta have a walking tea, and also a tea paired with a donut is what is known as a chuck. It's a thing. Tell your friends. Starting at Davis Tea, we'll go next door to the brand new stands, then we'll walk down Randolph to Durack, which is my favorite donut shop, then north across the river to Donut Vault, then up to Hubbard to Fire Cakes, where the crawl will sadly stop because the glaze infused down the block just closed along with all the others. But wait! There's more. If we're lucky, the beaver donuts truck will be nearby, making a nice little five-shop crawl. Um, and I thought of that pretty instantaneously. Uh, three, donut tourism. Okay, so don't forget that chucks are things. Tell your friends. But donut tourism is also a thing. At least I think it is, because any I always check out donut shops when I travel. Uh, when I went to New York a couple years ago, I picked an Airbnb specifically because of its proximity to a donut shop I wanted to check out. <laughs> Um, later on that trip, I saw Sleep No More, um, which is a play where you wander through it um, as it takes place across three or four stories in a warehouse. It's amazing. You should go, though it's a bit overwhelming. And so afterwards, I needed to sit and have a tea to collect my thoughts. Um, looking at my phone, it suggested a place with tea and donuts. Shut up, phone. <laughs> you don't know me. <laughs> Um, number four, uh, donuts are a social food. Uh, Mary Beth Smith of the Nerdalogs apparently texts a photo to someone, I think it's maybe Chris Geiger, um, every time she eats pizza. Is that right? And Kevin. And Kevin, okay. Uh, is she still doing that? Yes. Wonderful. Okay, so this apparently happens a lot. I started to do that with donuts, uh, for a friend with donuts, and I stopped because it made me too aware of how often I was eating donuts. <laughs> So um, I actually had to make a donuts or a social food rule only just to like cut down a little bit. Um, as more shops open, and there are a lot now, like my mind map was just constantly telling me I was near a shop, uh, just, and just always near a shop now. Um, so something had to be done. Number five, Donut Fest. The fifth Donut Fest is next weekend. I've been to all of them at this point. I can visit all the tables, sample all the donuts, and still remain unsated. I'm a pro. The, the key is to drink a lot of water while you go through it. Anyway, um, it's also the best day of the year because Donut Fest is always the same day as the Royal Rumble, yeah. uh, which is a pro wrestling thing. I'm not going to go into it, um, but I host a Royal Rumble party each year, and we play a game where we try to predict the Royal Rumble's winner. Um, whoever predicts correctly receives a gift card. A gift card for what? Donuts. I'm really glad you guessed that. Otherwise, I'm not really doing a good job of uh, telling the story. <laughs> Um, I also really like tea, and um, a couple years ago, uh, my church small group surprised me with a high tea for my birthday. Uh, and when we were done with the tea, they brought out a tower of donuts with candles and little WWE figures on it. Um, so we called it high tea, low class, uh, which is a pretty good summary of me. Uh, and then number six, my parents. Um, I don't just eat donuts, as I mentioned earlier, I also make donuts. Uh, when I was very young, my dad would fry donuts on 
church camping trips with a Kmart brand fryer, back when Kmart had appliances, um, that later came into my possession and got me started frying donuts on my own. Um, the donuts my dad makes are just, uh, write this down, it's super simple. Um, the donuts my dad makes are just biscuit rolls with a hole poked in the middle, um, fried if you need to know, fried at 375 degrees, um, and then covered in cinnamon sugar or powdered sugar. Um, they're very simple, but they're delicious, um, especially when they come right out of the fryer. In college, I have tons of friends over to my parents' house, which was just a town over, uh, and my dad would make hundreds of these little donuts in one night. Uh, over the years, they got competitive, and so there was a record for the most eaten in one night. Uh, would anyone like to guess what that record stands at? And I don't, it's never going away. This seems impossible. 171. Well, okay, no, wow, okay, that's really high. 60? Uh, well, you guys, were, you guys went way over. I thought maybe like 12, like a dozen, no, 60. Okay, um, 60 little donuts. Uh, towards the end, the record setter was uh, drinking water while eating because he had no saliva left. <laughs> yeah, uh, his name was Matt. He went by Guadi because he's from Guatemala. Which, like, as I'm only including this because as I was writing this story, I'm like, that's a weird thing to do. Like, I can't imagine going to like Paris and introducing myself as America. I feel like that'd be really weird, especially when my name is Mike Chuck, which already causes a lot of confusion. Uh, so I still have plenty of uh, I still have donut parties uh, where it's just me frying donuts. So I've moved on. Past my dad's simple donuts to making all kinds, where I make uh, the day, the, the dough, and the glazes myself. Uh, for the longest time, uh, these little donuts my dad made are where I thought my love of donuts started. Um, I only fairly recently learned that no, that is not where my love started. It started long before then, because when my mom was pregnant with me, my brother and sister were three and two years old, respectively. Going in for checkups was the only break from a house of toddlers that my mom had. So she would extend those breaks by stopping at a at Yule Donut Shop in Champagne, Urbana. So it turns out I was born this way. <laughs> Thanks. Recently, right before Christmas, he made these chocolate donuts with like a mint glaze, and then he like chopped um, those Andes mints in half and put them on top of the donuts. And if, if he put them on right as the donuts came out of the fryer, so like the Andes melted on top of the donuts. Oh man, that was <laughs> awesome! Thank you, Mike Chuck. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna be running Secret Hitler at that um, Comfort Kit event. So if you guys wanna uh, suss out Nazis. It's good practice. So uh, come, come help make comfort kits and then we'll play games together. We have two more storytellers tonight, starting with uh, a woman who was on our show last month, our sixth anniversary show. She's probably getting tired of us at this point, but I know we're not tired of her. Uh, she is a great improviser. She runs a show called The Strange Hour. She runs a show called Bring Your Own Diary, where people improvise scenes based on diary readings, which is very, very good. Please welcome Ashley Keenan. Are you tired? Okay, not yet, the one more. <laughs> um, okay, so um, for those of you who may be fearing the future, feeling a little bit of discomfort, I have a piece written by one of the 826 kids that will hopefully bring you some peace. Um, I read it, and it really touched me. It reminded me that love isn't a lesson. It's something you're born with, and you lose. So hopefully this makes you feel more happy. Okay, this is by David R. It's called Coming Out. I remember when I came out to my parents, friends, and teachers. The moment wasn't easy, yet I did it. I remember it was late afternoon, and I had told my parents that I had something to tell them. I remember my little brother and sister play fighting in a room far away. I sat down at the kitchen table. It was just my mom, dad, and me. I looked at them, but the fear of being pushed away made me look down. Seven minutes passed, and it was all quiet until I got up and headed to my room. I took a deep breath. I could hear mumbling in the kitchen. I could smell hot tea all the way up in my room. I stepped out and told my parents, I'm gay! <laughs> I was thinking that they would not be accepting of it. I walked away. But as I did, they said, we love you no matter who you are. We love you because you're you. My life in that moment changed. The only thing that was left for me to do was tell my friends. So the week we got back to school, I told them. It was early in the morning, I was in class. I told my best friend Abraham first, then I asked if he could help me. Abraham was gay too. 
I remember the exact words he said. He smiled, he smiled at me with this perfect smile and his green eyes. Don't worry, David. I'm going to help you. I won't leave you alone on this. You deserve to be who you are. I heard other people talking and gossiping throughout the day, but I kept on going. That afternoon, Abraham helped me tell people. I will never forget these moments because everyone was so supportive and understanding. I couldn't ask for more. Don't worry, we support you. I got your back. I felt so happy and with a whole new life. Everyone was there with me in this moment. I did it because I was proud of it. So I was known for who I was. I kept living my life because the world kept moving. So I did too. That is our future. Okay. Uh, so I have a piece for you that's a downer because that's what I do. <laughs> um, and I, I'm going to just jump right to it, but um, I apologize. It's going to be a little choppy. I've been trying to write it for about five years, and I get really angry every time, so it's going to be kind of a mess. Okay. <laughs> Five years ago, I met a woman who had changed my life forever. At the time, I was a care manager, the person, the person who handles non-clinical evaluations, schedules direct care, and at its most basic core, serves as an advocate for the elderly. I was 25, eager, and completely underqualified for what was about to happen. Late one afternoon in August, I got a call from Singapore. Through several clicks and cracks, I finally heard a young woman say, I'm not sure if this is the right place. My mom has Parkinson's, and I need someone to check on her. I need an extra set of eyes and ears. She didn't want to accuse anyone, but her voice was tepid, and in elder care, the words extra eyes and ears cannot be mistaken. Something wasn't right. Twenty minutes later, I arrive at a skilled nursing facility that seems built for brochures. It's nestled among blooming marigolds and hundred-year-old trees. On the way in, I pass a CNA laughing in the sun with her patient. The lobby is honey-colored and warm, and I'm quickly greeted by a sunny-haired receptionist who's good at small talk and eager to please. My heart softened for a moment. Maybe this was one of the good places. Maybe I'd get to make a pleasant call to a family for once. Things begin to change as I progress down the hallway. The sounds of the oldies playing in the reception slowly fade to a sustained metallic hum. The lights shift to blue, and the staff appear in two parallel speeds. One are sprinting, and some are bumbling along with tight shoulders and heads tucked into their chests. I feel like I'm walking through a stroke. The elevator dings, and I shimmy into the, lightly packed, into the tightly packed car alongside a custodian, two seniors, and a nurse. The faux wood paneling makes the face feel claustrophobic, begging for air. Finally, I arrive at her door. I knock before entering Mrs. Novak's room. I should say, I changed the, some of the details to respect her privacy. Um, I arrived, uh, <laughs> I knocked before entering Mrs. Novak's room. No answer. I gently push the door open and walk in. On the bed closest to me is a frail woman in her mid-80s. Her legs are extended straight up in the air, protective briefs that were so saturated they had begun to melt away from her thighs. The starch white sheets underneath her buttocks were marked with rings of old urine, marking the minutes and hours since she had been last changed. Her neighbor in the bed next to her sits up and, and says, she never says anything, you know. She pointed at the bed across from her. She just lays there like some kind of slow person, but I guess they take all types here. I'm leaving soon, though. I just had rehab for my niece. She pulls up her blue gown and shows the stitches. Well, I hope you have a safe recovery then, I say with a pinched smile. Hi, Mrs. Novak. I said, walking to her bed. Your daughter asked me to come visit with you. How are you doing today? Her jaw moved in circles, but no sound came out. Mrs. Novak, I see that your legs are in the air. Are you doing this to get a good stretch, or is there another meaning to it? Her eyebrows shut up, and she threw her body toward me, speechless. Her eyes locked mine, and she rocked back and forth. I put my hand on hers. Mrs. Novak, are you trying to communicate something by raising your eyebrows? She hurled her body toward me and blinked. Okay, I understand, I said. From now on, you can raise your eyebrows to say yes, and if you want to say no, you can look away, okay? She arched her eyebrows high on her head and began thrashing against the bed. This is not the woman her, her daughter told me about. She visited just three weeks ago. They went to the theater, they laughed, and went for walks. The woman in front of me looked like a skeleton wrapped in broken latex. Her hospital gown was scalloped around her chest, 
exposing a G-tube protruding from her stomach. Mrs. Novak, would you mind if I adjust your gown? You looked uncomfortable. Again, her eyes light up. She grasped my fingers in her hand until they turned white. Using my free hand, I pulled her gown to cover her waist. Just then, a needless syringe shook free from her side and hit the bed. And there was more trash, too. A medicinal cup pressed with orange nutrients. And a sheath of old bandages came out from under her blanket. My heart dropped like an anchor. I'd never seen anything like this before. I took a minute to survey the room. The phone was off the hook, and there was medical-grade garbage scattered on the bureau. Would you mind if I clean some of this up, I asked. Mrs. Novak's eyebrows became crescents on her forehead. Well, that's all on her side of the room, the roommate chimed in. That's all her mess. I keep my space tidy. The woman patted her freshly made bed with a smile. I collected the debris from her bed and the floor and brushed her hair from her face. Mrs. Novak, I'm going to get a staff member to help change you, and then we can talk a bit more if that's okay. She began kicking her legs against the bed as I left. I chased down a nurse, and 30 minutes later, a CNA arrived to help clean her up. Weeks went by like this. I was only supposed to visit once every 90 days, but I found myself in her room after work, on lunch break, and on weekends. I'd like to believe that I became so devoted to her out of the sheer recognition of her need for humanity. But the reality was I saw myself in her. I felt alone with her. Eventually, Mrs. Novak began attempting to take her own life. Each day, she would rip out her G-tube and be rushed to the hospital. And each time I'd show up at the ER and explain that she had a DNR, a do not resuscitate, and that this wasn't an accident before being pushed aside by the hospital staff. Finally, one day, I was called to the ER, and I found Mrs. Novak with mittens bound around her hands so she couldn't rip the tube. I'm sorry, I told her. I took out some lavender oil and rubbed it on her temples. Mrs. Novak, I just want to make sure I understand so I can help you better. Are you doing this on purpose? She hammered her legs against the bed and met my eyes with a stare of desperation. Are you trying to kill yourself? Her eyebrows stood high on her head, and she made an unblinking plea with me. I understand. I'll do everything I can, I said. Just then, the doctor emerges with tools to put her G-tube back in. Hi, I just wanted to reaffirm that Mrs. Novak has a DNR. Are you her daughter? No, I'm the, her care manager and her friend. Well, I'm sorry, she doesn't have the bracelet on, and I can't follow any directives without proper documentation. She's in a skilled nursing facility just up the street. They have it on file. I'm sorry, but I really can't do anything about it unless the hospital has it present at this moment. Two nurses swipe through the curtain. We'll grab her legs, they say. The, doctors press a, the doctor presses a tube against her stomach as the nurses hold her down. Suddenly, she begins flailing with all her might. Her foot knocked against the nurse's face, and her hand swiped over her stomach so she can push away the doctor. Secure her arms, he shouted. The nurses dropped her legs and bound her arms instead. I'm so sorry, Mrs. Novak. I'm so sorry, I said. Her legs kept firing against the bed as the doctor struggled with the tube. Grab her legs, he said, pointing at me. Grab her legs or she could really be hurt. In a panic, I held her legs down, and she began shaking, her head no and pounding it against the bed. I'm so sorry, I cried. In five minutes, the procedure was done. After her fifth attempt, she moved to an advanced care facility in my neighborhood. I visited with her as much as I could. Finally, on her 85th birthday, I decided to give her a surprise party. I hired a classical guitarist to play Spanish love songs, and I brought in pastels and charcoal so we could draw together. I gave her a gentle massage with, the, with essential oils, did her makeup, and we began to sketch as the soft, sweet sounds of romanza filled the room. She lifted her finger and played conductor for a moment, and then took the charcoal and drew a long black mark across the page. I handed her a blue pastel, and she made two wobbly loops in the shape of a lily. When I left that day, my heart was full. I kissed her forehead and promised to check in on her, next, on her the next day. The next morning, I arrived at work full of sunshine and optimism, thinking I could still make a difference. Then my boss came in and told me that she passed in the night. For years, I've carried her story with me like a shadow sewn to my skeleton. I can't stop thinking about it when I'm on the train, when I'm rushing to work. I think about her on holidays and when I have long bouts of depression. For several years, I was haunted by her ending. I was bound with should-haves and could-haves, but finally I realized that my memory could not be served by inaction, that her memory could not be served by inaction. With self-pity and anger, I decided to put my remorse into action. 
In 2015, I began volunteering with an organization called Little Brothers Friends of the Elderly. This organization provides meals, companionship, and a sense of belonging to isolated seniors. This organization is more than eyes and ears. They are hearts and hands. They're community builders. They are light for those left in the shadows. They are a voice, sung and chorus. You are seen, you are heard, you matter, and you belong. I wonder if things would have been different if she'd heard that message. You belong. You belong. Thank you. We've come to the end of our lovely afternoon. We have one more storyteller. He is a great stand-up. He runs, uh, well, We Still Like You is the name of your show, right? He runs a show called We Still Like You. Uh, he's the whole reason that I latched onto this concept of Fortnite from the heart. I'm sure there's many moments when Tyler's like, dude, what are you doing? I was just trying to post some dumb music videos on Facebook. You're crazy. I am crazy. I admit it. But this is really cool. I'm glad that this is where we've come. Please put your hands together for Mr. Tyler Snodgrass. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> this is so weird. Uh, <laughs> but so cool. Uh, so I, um, I, I wrote a Fortnite from the heart on a blog that now does not exist uh, because there were too many... Uh, embarrassingly uncomedic comedy essays that I wrote on it. So <laughs> had to go. Uh, but I wrote it on there and shared it to Facebook. Uh, and I think Eric is the only person who was like, yes. Uh, <laughs> I think you were the only one on board. And it, that means the world to me that you have. You've done a better job about like projecting the idea than I have. Um, but you have the strike for t-shirts. I do, oh. yeah. I wore my hair metal best uh, for the... <laughs> the occasion um and i'm actually i'm not really presenting a piece as it is a um boy just a bunch of thoughts uh but they all i think will tie into the theme as i originally put it uh two years ago on facebook and a dead blog uh, but i essentially was trying to uh find a reason to celebrate valentine's day um because uh i loved metal didn't really love love uh, for a very long time and power ballads were kind of uh my my way of getting into being emotive because i have been a musician for a long time uh i played i started playing guitar when i was nine years old and uh my only interest in music was an academic kind of interest so I didn't really care about pop music or really any genre other than what genre has the most technically challenging material possible. Um, so I was very into, obviously, like thrash metal and Rush. Like, right? That's like, where it's at. Uh, songs about girls? No thanks. Okay? <laughs> I don't know what those are. Uh, I like the hard stuff. Um, so I was really into, got really into all of that. And uh, power ballads kept popping up in my life, though, because, you know, if you're into... Metal, you're probably into classic rock, you're into Zeppelin, you're going to scoot over to Journey, you're going to scoot over to Mario Speedwagon, you know, and this is real, <laughs> uh, can't fight this feeling anymore, was the song that I was playing when I had my first kiss. That is real. <laughs> yeah. So, more serious. And then just, you know, less than two hours ago, it probably cut my hangover feeling in half. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, children. Uh, and I, I've like really played it careful, but I'm not, you know, a 21-year-old David Lee Roth anymore. I am a 28-year-old who uh, forgot that you can't have champagne and beer in the same night. Um, I didn't have that much of either, but I'm weak now. So, any anyway. Oh, and also, uh, there's this. I'm from Springfield, Missouri, uh, which explains why I'm wearing a Christian metal band T-shirt. <laughs> in the Bible Belt. And Striper, if you don't know, is the premier Christian metal band. Isaiah 53.5, by the stripes we are healed. Um, they have songs like uh, To Hell with the Devil. You've got to look them up. They are great. They also have power ballads like Carrie, uh, which is fine. It's a middling power ballad. I told you this wasn't a piece. This was uh, just kind of rolling around. But uh, I went through a bad breakup in 2011 when I was in college, and my friends knew the only thing, thing that could help me was to take me to the local 80s cover band called Members Only, um, where I could listen to all my favorite power ballads, and for about three hours, I just felt the love of my friends and, and music, uh, so then I could go and cry 
later. But I say all of this to say that I love power ballads and it was a journey of getting into that because like I said I was like oh I'm like a metal kid like the only feelings I have are nothing (laughs) (laughs) and also if there was an eagle made of metal that would be cool (laughs) (laughs) I was like love is lame I didn't like dating or maybe I was like scared to put myself out there probably both Uh, but you know I was like "I, I listen to music I know that love stinks Ask Jack Allen's band. I know that love hurts. Ask Nazareth. I know that love bites. Ask Judas Priest or Death Leopard. All right? I've done my research on all of this. Uh, but I, I really started getting into power ballads more and more when I was in college. But it was like a secret thing because no one's on board, right? Like maybe you guys were listening to them today and you're like, oh yeah, they are pretty good. And if that's the case, you're welcome. Because uh, they are. They're incredible. Have you, have you listened to Alone by Heart in the last 10 years? Oh my God. It's a banger. It's so good. Uh, in the uh, Oh Sherry by Steve Perry when he tried to go solo from Journey for a bit. It's amazing. It's it's truly incredible. Also, power ballads like saved people's careers, right? So like, you know, in the 70s, here's a quick history lesson. In the 70s, R.E.S.B. Wagons, Dix, and Journey were basically just every couple years releasing a proto-power ballad. And then in the mid-80s, the Scorpions, or sorry, Scorpions, and uh, Motley Crue released their respective power ballads. And all of a sudden, the metal bands were like, oh yeah, that's where the money is. We have to like emote a little bit. We can't just talk about the devil and sex. Uh, we gotta talk about love. Um, and so then that like, you know, that saved the Scorpion's career later. Uh, it saved, like Metallica wrote one. That's crazy. Uh, Aerosmith became relevant in the early 2000s because of it. It's a whole thing. You think that I Want It That Way by the Baxter Boys would exist if Power Ballads didn't beforehand? Not a chance. You know what I mean? Anyway, so uh, I did did some research uh, to express my love of Power Ballads. And I want to say that love gives us depth. And like the pieces you heard from the kids today and the ones that you guys read, like they were amazing. And I wish I could write something so heartfelt as you guys did or the children did. Uh, But instead, I'm just like, jokey, 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 shredding, you know, like that's been my existence the whole time. Um, But I've tried to dabble in love. And I think it has given me depth, just like it's given depth to bands who have written albums with these titles and none of these album titles are made up. Slippery When Wet. No Protection. Porno graffiti. <laughs> That's by extreme. Uh, high infidelity. Ooh. <laughs> That's Arius <R-S-B-Wet. laughs> Open up and say, ah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, cherry pie, belly to belly, love it for sting, love gun, and lick it up, right? These are bands with no depth. And then they were like, we have to write a love song. And all of a sudden, they have depth. Maybe for the first time ever. <laughs> Which is really cool. Um, and I finally allowed myself to be more emotive. Like, clearly, I'm like smiling a lot, but that's just because it makes social interactions easier, right? Like, <laughs> like, I know how to play the game, you know? It doesn't mean I'm emotional. <laughs> um, but I. <laughs> I finally uh, started uh, dabbling with uh, being emotive. I tried to write more heartfelt comedy and heartfelt pieces. And I actually, uh, a year and a half ago, fell in love for the first time, which was really neat and new. Um, and my girlfriend's very emotional. Um, she is, maybe I should just say, she's very emotive, right? Her sleeves are covered in whatever she's feeling all of the time. And she calls me a robot, uh, half-joking all the time. Um, but I think that... I have, as I've grown to know her and grown to uh, expand my artistic uh, likings outside of just, you know, whatever is dark and fast, um, I too have become a more, uh, not romantic necessarily, but a more loving person. Because I already had these other Baptist emotions locked down, like shame and guilt and (laughs) silent judgment. I like was crushing those. Um, And even though I'm still a love infant, uh, I think that I'm working my way up to being alone by heart as a person uh, more and more. And that's all I've got for you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, man. 
That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Look, we had an emotional journey through power ballads. It's what I always dreamed. Um, Katie Dwight, you want to come back up? Yeah. So I will say that, yeah, kind of similarly to Tyler, like um, at this show years ago, Mary Beth Smith said something really profound, which is that art kind of uh, like helps you feel feelings that you're, you're not actively using at the time so that you can remember what it's like to have them later when you need them. And I think kind of similarly to Tyler, that's what power ballads have done for me. Like uh, as someone who has never had Valentine's Day planned, uh, I, I love listening to these songs and like, oh yeah, this is like the right spirit. And also I love technical precision. I love that they can do like this on their guitar. And it's just cool. I, I really, I get into it. So thank you for sharing your love of the power ballad with the world, Tyler, and reminding me about mine. Yeah. Uh, give it up to everybody who spoke tonight. You were also great. Also, uh, 826. Man, 826 Shy, so good. Please donate some money. Pick up something at the store. We really appreciate them and their efforts. And uh, yeah, so this is a podcast that comes out every Monday. You'll hear half of today's show tomorrow. You'll hear the other half in a week from tomorrow. Uh, like I said, we're doing a pop-up model this year. So next month we're at Logan Theater featuring special guest Pot Erotica, which is a Harry Potter erotica podcast. Um, children, you can't come to that one. Uh, in two months we're at Challengers Comics with the podcast Marty and Sarah Love Wrestling and also Colt Cabana, who is kind of like a wrestling sensation. So that's going to be fun. And... Uh, we're going to take we you all, out. Are we all going to stand for this? I think we are. This is a Celine Dion song you cannot sit for. <laughs> I was going to say, so this is written by Jim Steinman, Meatloaf's longtime partner. Uh, and Meatloaf has a version, but darn if Celine didn't, didn't knock it out of the park. I danced to this, like, for my first ballet recital as an eight-year-old child. Really? Um, yeah, it was an edited version. Ooh. That was so sexual. <laughs> Give it up for Katie and Dwight. They're going to really go for it. Also. body froze in bed if I just listened to it right outside the window. There were days, oh, yeah. there were days when the sun was so cruel that all the tears turned to dust and I just knew
This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.